Good morning. How are we? Good, good, good. Well, hey, it's glad, or I'm glad to be back here with you guys. Week two of, uh, of three services, and last week was great. We had over 900 people here last Sunday, or well, last week, students, everybody. It was awesome. Um, again, and, and this is probably something we'll do every week just because we know that this is going to be the very full service every week. And so... Um, for you guys that are, that are regular attenders, we feel like this is probably going to be the service a lot of new people come to, a lot of guests want to come to because it's kind of primetime church hour. So if you're a regular attender, I just want to encourage you as well, uh, sometime over the next few weeks, maybe check out the 9 or the 1159, see if you like one of those, and, uh, and if maybe that could be a good fit for you, just to free up some more seats here. Uh, if you're claustrophobic like I am, and you just don't like touching people, um, you can come and check one of those services out as well, and maybe that would be helpful to have a seat kind of all by yourself, okay? So, but hey, I'm glad that you guys are here, and I'm looking forward to a great morning together. So let's get our Bibles. Let's go Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Um, You just heard the guys sing a song that uh, reflects a passage of scripture we're going to be looking at this morning, 700 years Before Jesus was crucified, the prophet Isaiah told us in Isaiah 53 that at his death, the Messiah, who we believe in and and, uh, know as Jesus, that at his death he would be numbered with criminals or transgressors 700 years before his crucifixion. Now if you fast forward 700 years and you pick this book up and you read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you find is that at his death, as Jesus was hung on the cross, that he was actually hung in between um, two robbers or thieves. Now, these robbers or or thieves, if you pay attention to the New Testament, you find out that these guys weren't just the types of thieves that stole in secret, right? They weren't the show up at your house when you're on vacation and take your stuff, guys. Uh, They weren't the credit card fraud guys buying stuff online, using your identity, These robbers and thieves, these were the bad to the bone kind of robbers, thieves. These guys were the armed robber kind of guys. These were the take stuff by force, use violence. These were the guys who, you know, today would walk into a bank in the middle of the afternoon with guns blazing, taking what they wanted. Also, these guys, if it meant getting what they wanted, if it meant they had to kill somebody, they would do it and not give a second thought. And so these guys crucified beside Jesus at his death I mean, these were some really bad guys. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you heard me explain everything that Jesus went through leading up to the cross as part of the crucifixion process. You also heard me talk some about what he experienced as he hung there. Well, these two thieves crucified alongside of him, they would have had a front row seat to everything that we talked about last week. Like a lot of what Jesus experienced, they would have watched him go through. These two men, they would have carried their cross alongside Jesus to the place that they were all crucified. When they got to Golgotha, the place of the skull, um, they would have been laid across their crosses as Jesus was and had spikes driven through their wrists and their feet just like he did. Uh, These two thieves, they would have hung beside him on their crosses and heard Jesus pray the prayer that we talked about last week for the people responsible for his crucifixion. I mean, these guys would have heard Jesus pray over the people below him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Uh, these two guys, they were probably feet away from the cross of Jesus. And on top of the cross of Jesus was a sign that Pilate put there. And it said, this is the king of the Jews. When a person was crucified during the time of Jesus, um, the, the Roman officials always put a nameplate or some kind of plate on the top of the cross to specify what their crime was, why they were being crucified. So Jesus' plate up on the top of his cross, it was hung there for mockery, for insult. This is the king of the Jews. And these two thieves on the cross, as they hung there, they would again been able to see that clearly, easily. Now in Luke chapter 23, we find the amazing story of how each of these men respond to Jesus. How they respond to everything they've seen, everything they've experienced, everything they've watched him go through, everything that they've heard him say. And we also find Jesus responding back to one of them with some pretty incredible words of hope and salvation. So I want us to go, uh, if you've got your Bibles open, to, to Luke 23. We're going to read verses 39 through 43. If you don't have a Bible, you can feel free to follow along up here on the screen. We'll put the scripture there for you as well. So let's read this together. Here's what it says. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, the Bible says, looked back at this thief and says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So let's paint the picture, okay? All these guys are now on their crosses. And the Bible says one of the thieves, I mean, these guys are partners in crime. One of these guys continues just to mock, insult, rail Jesus as they all hang there together. Matthew 27, 44 tells us that both thieves at one point during the crucifixion of Jesus were, were playing into that. They were both mocking him, not just the one, but now on the cross, this guy's continuing to do this. And the Bible says he looks at Jesus and it's like, Dude, why don't you do something? Aren't you supposed to be the son of God? Like you're the Christ, right? You're supposed to be powerful. Well, if you're so powerful, get off your cross and then get us down from here too. I mean, he's continuing to mock Jesus, just really sarcastic. And then his friend speaks up. And when his friend, the other thief on his cross speaks up, what we find is that something with the other guy has changed. I mean, he went from denying and mocking Jesus along with his buddy to now being on the cross beside Jesus, and his words start to tell us that he's actually beginning to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. I mean, he looks at his friend, and here's this question to his friend. He goes, bro, do you not fear God? You have no fear of God. Here's why he's asking this question. Because he's hanging here dying, realizing he's done nothing good with his life. And he understands in a few short hours, when he closes his eyes in death, he's going to stand before God and answer for the way he's lived. I mean, his thought's overwhelming him to the point where he rebukes his friend and he goes, dude, would you just, he's not even guilty. What are you saying to him, man? I mean, where's your fear? Do you not understand what waits on us? We're going through this because we deserve it. Him, he's innocent. He doesn't deserve any of it. And after he rebukes his friend, the Bible says he looks 
at Jesus and he asked Jesus a simple question. He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you just remember me? Remember me. One of the books I've been reading as I've been studying for this series, the writer named Fleming Rutledge says that in the scripture, when a person asks God to remember them, they're not asking God to simply think about them, but instead they're asking God to act on their behalf with power to save. And so at the cross, this thief, we see him coming to this place where he places faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can act on his behalf with power to save him. And he asks him, Lord, remember me, save me. And before we get to Jesus' response, um, I just thought it would be good for us to stop and talk about the faith that the thief exercised when he made this statement because it's absolutely incredible. If you take a notes, write this down. Write down saving faith. Saving faith. At the cross, this thief, as he asked Jesus to remember him, to save him, to act on his behalf with power, he's exercising saving faith. Now, saving faith is simply faith that throws logic and reason out the window. It's faith that lets those things go at some point. And I'll show you what I mean. Right, here's a guy who's dying and he's asking another dying guy to save him. Doesn't that seem weird? Right, I mean, this guy, both of them, and he's looking and he's going, hey, dying guy, Jesus, um, could you do something? Could you act with power on my behalf and save me? I mean, doesn't that seem pretty unreasonable? Doesn't that seem pretty unlogical? Like, Jesus can't even, according to Scripture at this point, it doesn't even appear that he's saving himself. I mean, how in the world is he going to save anybody else? But you see, this is what saving faith is about. It's about choosing to believe what's true in spite of how things might look. And the thief exercises this faith at the cross. I'll give you another example of this. Jesus, I told you this last week, is dying a horrific death that during this time was, was reserved for the worst criminals in society. I mean, it was reserved for the scum of the earth criminal. And crucifixion was used to just humiliate these people. So here's Jesus dying this kind of death King of the Jews sign on the top of his cross hung there again for mockery and for insult. And somehow, and for some reason, the thief on the cross, he reads that and looks past the mockery and he starts believing it. I mean, think about it again when he asked Jesus, he says, Jesus, not only remember me, but what? When you come into your kingdom, remember me. This thief is reading that sign and going, this guy's a king. And I don't believe he's a king, just like they're making fun of him being a king. Like, I believe he's really a king, and he's going to have a kingdom, and he's going to rule and reign in power. And so I'm going to ask him as king to remember me and to save me when he's ruling and reigning in his kingdom. That sounds nuts, doesn't it? This is saving faith. I'll give you one more example of this. Here's a guy who's lived a horrific life. I mean, his life has been about nothing more than stealing from people and killing people. And listen, some of us need to hear what I'm about to say this morning, so I want you to dial in, okay? This guy, a murderer and a thief, asks the Son of God to save him, to remember him. 
That seems unreasonable, doesn't it? For some of us. Like, and what I mean by that is this. Some of us are in the room this morning, and because of our past mistakes, because of things that we've done, we can't really believe right now that God actually wants to do anything for us. It's hard for us to think about God loving us, God showing us grace, God forgiving us. It's hard for us to imagine that this was about us. This was about God saving us, redeeming us, rescuing us. And so you hear a guy like me go, God loves you, God wants to save you, God wants a relationship with you. And you go, whoa, no, 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 no. Like logic and reason kicks in and you go, not me. Like you don't know what I've done. Listen to me, this thief, this is saving faith. This thief goes, I know all I've done and I'm remorseful for it. I'm broken over it. And I'm asking you in spite of all of that stuff, Jesus, to save me, forgive me, give me eternal life. This is saving faith. He chooses to confess Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as King, and to ask him for something that he knows he doesn't deserve while choosing to believe that Jesus is going to give it to him anyway. It's a saving faith. And listen to me, church, this is the kind of faith that every single one of us has to come to Jesus with if we're going to trust in him as Savior and Lord, be forgiven of our sins, be given eternal life, and have a relationship with God. Saving faith, it lets go of logic and reason, and it chooses to believe what's true. Um, The second kind of faith that this thief exercises at the cross is courageous faith. Courageous faith. This thief on his cross is the one guy out of the entire crowd that is confessing Jesus as Lord, as Savior, and as King. Right? I mean, he, his friend is mocking. Everybody there is mocking. They're humiliating. I mean, even Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, they left. Like when Jesus was arrested to be put to death, they ran for their lives. They saw this coming for Jesus, and they were afraid that if they stuck close by, that they were going to experience the same thing he was experiencing. So they fled. But this thief at the cross, in spite of everyone else choosing to deny and mock Jesus, he's confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior and asking Jesus to remember him and to save him. I mean, this is courage. He shows just how bold he truly is in showing absolutely no concern for how people might treat him by professing and standing by what he believes to be true about Jesus. Church, um, this is what being a believer in Christ is about. You know that, right? It's about us choosing to stand by Jesus no matter what we might experience from others. And this is the kind of faith this thief displays at the cross. Jesus' response to this man's faith is amazing. And I love the statement that he makes. Luke 23, 43. Again, Jesus looks at this guy and he says, Today, today, on this very day, you will be with me in paradise. And for the rest of our time this morning, I just want us to talk about, unpack what these words of Jesus to the thief reveal to us and remind us of. So again, take notes, write down the statement. Write down, salvation is a free gift from God. Salvation is a free gift from God. When Jesus tells this thief in response to his faith that he'll be with him in paradise on that very day, Those words remind us, church, that there is nothing that we have to do to earn salvation. Nothing. And that's good news because, according to the Bible, there's nothing we can do 
to earn our salvation. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us about salvation. Here's what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul reminds us in these verses that salvation is given to us by God, and it is free. That salvation and forgiveness of sins is a gift that God gives to people who will come and trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, have faith in Jesus as the Son of God who came into the world to die for our sins and to give us eternal life. And Paul reminds us again that our salvation, it is not a result of what we do or what we don't do. Now listen to me. Church, you do get that it doesn't matter what you've done up until the point of God saving you. God doesn't save you because of what you've done, right? You, you can't earn your salvation. It doesn't matter what you haven't done. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. Again, God saves you not because of you. God saves you because he wants to save you in spite of you. And Paul reminds us he does this so that none of us can ever boast or brag about how awesome we are, Right? Like God's intention was not to create a bunch of self-righteous people who walk around talking about how great they are. God's intention in giving us salvation was to create a people for himself that would just stop every day and go, man, I can't believe he's done this for me, right? I couldn't do this for myself, but God saved me, gave me a gift through Jesus. Our salvation, this is about driving us to God in worship, not leaving us in a place where we draw attention to ourselves, That's why salvation is not a result of works, but again, it's just a free gift. And we see this playing out in the life of the thief on the cross, don't we? This one truth that that salvation comes as a gift from God is the one truth that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. I, I, a couple years ago, heard a story about a pastor that I read after and listen to And uh, he was on a panel somewhere with some other guys who were religious leaders in all kinds of religions from around the world. And he said that he was sitting on this panel with uh, like a Buddhist priest, a Jewish rabbi, uh, leaders in Islam and Hinduism. And they were talking about individually kind of what they believed and they were doing a Q&A session. We said during the Q&A session, um, and I believe it was the Buddhist priest spoke up and he was answering a question and he basically said to the crowd, all of us guys up here on the stage, we believe in one God, the same God. And each of our religions, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, they're all just different paths to get to where he is. And the priest painted this picture. He said, God, he's, it's, it's like he's sitting on top of this big mountain, right? And we're all around the bottom of this mountain. And again, our religions are different paths to take us to where he is. Well, the Christian pastor um, spoke up and he just politely asked the Buddhist priest, I think this is what you're saying. Is that right? And he said, yeah. And the pastor said, the problem with that is that that's just not what we believe as Christians, And he goes, here, I'll try to help you understand what we believe. And so he paints the picture again. And he said, imagine that mountain again. We're all standing around the bottom of the mountain. And here's God on top. And our problem is that there are no paths to get to where he is. We can't, like we can't work hard enough, try hard enough, follow enough rules, be good enough people. There are no paths to get to where he is. And so God understands that and he sees us. And instead of God waiting on us to try to figure out how to get to where he is because we can't, God comes off the mountain and he gets us. 
He goes, that's Christianity. God comes down the mountain as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to rescue sinful people and to make a way to be with him. Church, listen to me. That truth and that truth alone is what makes us Christians. It's what sets us apart. And the thief on the cross this afternoon realizes this, recognizes this, as he watches Jesus there dying on the cross. He is the way, the one way. He is God come to rescue me because I cannot rescue myself. And what does he do? Again, he asks Jesus for a gift, doesn't he? I mean, again, this guy, he's done nothing good. He's wasted his life. He's dying now. So it's not even like you can come to Jesus and go, hey, if you'll save me, remember me from this point forward, I'll live for you, man. I'll give my life to you. There's none of that. He's dying in a few hours. And so he says, Jesus, in your kingdom, just save me. Act on my behalf with power. And what does Jesus do? He responds and he gives this man a gift, a free gift, hope and salvation because of his faith that he put in Jesus Christ, no strings attached. So if you're here this morning and you've been one of those people, man, you've been pushing Jesus aside and going, you know what, I, I need to clean myself up, I need to be better. If you're one of those people that goes, man, I'm just not good enough or moral enough for God yet, you'll never be good enough or moral enough. But you know what? The good news is you don't have to be. Jesus has been good enough for you and he's done everything needed to, to, to put you in a place where you can receive salvation from God. There's nothing that you need to do. And I pray that you stop believing the lie this morning that you need to do something because you don't. Salvation's a gift. For those of us that are here this morning, maybe we know Jesus, but we still struggle with our past with guilt, with condemnation, mistakes we've made. And we're spending our Christian life trying to make up for all the things that we've done wrong. L let me help you out this morning. You need to be set free from that. Listen, Jesus has made up for everything you've ever done wrong. And God doesn't want you to spend your entire Christian life trying to make up for being bad a long time ago or maybe recently. What he wants you to do is to trust in Jesus and to love Jesus and to live your life for the glory and the fame of Jesus because you understand he's given you a gift. This is what salvation is about, church. And this is good news for all of us. Our salvation does not depend on us, what we have done, what we haven't done. There's nothing that we could ever do to make God love us more or love us less. And we need to rest in that truth this morning. It's good news. Salvation is a free gift. The second thing I want you to write down is this. Jesus is always ready to save lost people. Jesus is always ready to save lost people. Um, again, last week, if you were here, when I described that crucifixion process, I told you that Jesus had been beaten, he'd been whipped, punched in the face, beard ripped out, he was scourged, had pieces of his body literally torn off, he had crown of thorns driven onto his head, spikes driven through his wrist and his feet. As Jesus hung on his cross, he had every reason in the world to be focused in on himself and himself only, didn't he? I mean, we can't imagine the pain he must have felt hanging there, how tired, how close to death he was. But you know what we see? We see Jesus not focused in on himself at the cross, 
But in response to this thief's faith, he turns all of his attention to this man who is desperately in need of hope and forgiveness and eternal life. I mean, think about it. Jesus could have responded a completely different way, right? Like, uh, bro, now's not a good time for me, right? Um, I don't know if you, I mean, you feel this too, don't you? I mean, this hurts and isn't that good? And I mean, do you realize what you've done? I don't know. Maybe we can talk about this later. He, he doesn't do that though. The thief says, act on my behalf, save me, remember me. And what does Jesus do? He proves to us that no matter what's going on, he's always ready to save lost people. And he responds and he tells the thief that, you're going to be with me today. I'm ready right now to save you, offer you hope, offer you forgiveness, offer you life. Again, I need you to know this morning, and I know I've alluded to this already. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past looks like. I don't care what your present looks like. It doesn't matter the mistakes you've made, how badly you feel like you've messed up. It does not matter what kind of family you come from. It doesn't matter if no one else around you wants to offer you any hope, any forgiveness, any second chances. Jesus is always ready to receive, to restore, to forgive, to heal, to save. Always. He's never too busy. There's nothing too important for him that he can't put aside to save someone who needs hope and forgiveness and salvation. And I hope you believe that this morning. Listen to me. If Jesus can save a murderer and a thief as he's dying, he can save you. He can save you. I love what Erwin Lutzer, an author and pastor, has to say. He says, listen, there is more forgiveness. And this is what the thief's forgiveness reminds us of. His forgiveness reminds us that there is more grace in God's heart than sin in our past. Some of us need to hear that and believe that this morning. For those of us that know Jesus, and this is my hope and prayer for this church. For those of us that know Jesus, knowing that Jesus is already, always ready to save lost people means that we always need to be ready to tell lost people Jesus is ready to save them. Like nothing can ever be too busy like, we can't ever let schedules get in the way or stuff get in the way of us connecting with people who need Jesus, whether it's friends, families, coworkers, neighbors, whatever, to give them the good news that Jesus Christ wants to give them a gift. I pray that this would be a church who walks around this community slowly praying that God would open our eyes to see people as he sees people and to remember that we've got a message to share with the lost world that Jesus is always ready to save them. Can't ever be too busy. The last thing, and I want you to write this down. I love this. I want you to write down death equals fellowship. Death equals fellowship. Again, if you go back to Jesus' words one last time, I want us to pay close attention to what he says. He says again, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's what this statement reminds us of. It reminds us that for those of us that know Jesus... Death results in instant fellowship with him. For those of us that know him, death results in instant fellowship with him. Now I want to explain this so that we get it. There are uh, people and religions around the world that teach that after death um, comes something else other than fellowship with Jesus. Um, there are religions that teach that after death, that death results in things like purgatory, Right? That after death, you go to this place and you receive a temporary punishment to be cleansed of sins so that you can be fit and made ready for heaven or paradise. 
Um, there are also people in religions that teach things like death results in something called soul sleep. That after a person who knows Jesus dies, that their soul just goes to sleep. And when Jesus comes back one day, whenever that might be, to resurrect everybody from the dead, then they're with him. But in between now and then, we're just kind of hanging out, unconscious state. Now, the problem with both of these teachings um, is the Bible. And, and I just want us to be a church that believes the Bible, teaches the Bible, believes what's true in the Bible. Neither of those things are taught anywhere in the Bible. What's taught in the Bible consistently and constantly is that when we close our eyes in death, we open them, for those of us that know him, in fellowship with Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus' words to the thief reflect that. Jesus doesn't say, all right, you know what? When I come into my kingdom, I'll figure this thing out. You've been a really terrible guy, so you're going to need to go experience some punishment for a little while. I'll see what I can do, right? Jesus doesn't say, listen, it'll be a few thousand years before I come back to take my church home. So after you die today, just hang out, rest, get some good sleep, and then uh, I'll see you in a few thousand years. He goes, no, 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 I'm going to tell you the truth. And I love that Jesus says that. I tell you the truth today, this very day. After you die, you're going to be in paradise. Today, death is fellowship. And Jesus doesn't say he's just going to be in paradise. But again, he says he's going to be with him when he gets there. And those two little words, with me, that Jesus speaks are so crucial, and I'll tell you why. Here's why. Because they remind us that the point of heaven or paradise is to be with Jesus. Church, you you get that, right? Like as awesome as heaven is going to be with no sickness, no pain, no tears, no sin, no death, mansions, streets of gold, angels, all that stuff. Like heaven isn't heaven unless Jesus is there. You get that. The point of heaven or paradise is to be with Jesus. And Jesus' words to the thief remind us that death is not so much about getting us to a place as it is about getting us to a person. And the person that death gets us to, if we know him, is Jesus. Um, Two of my favorite verses in the Bible speak to this. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when I do funerals at the at, uh, funerals of believers in Christ, I always tell their family that. You know your family members in the presence of Jesus right now. That's hope. Paul, Philippians 121, for him, he said to live is Christ, to die is gain. And why was dying better than living for him? It wasn't because he got to go to a place. He says it was because he gets to go and he gets to be with Jesus. He wanted to be where Jesus was. And that's why death was better than life. Because death is about fellowship with Jesus. It's about getting us to a person. The person named Jesus who was God who came to save us and rescue us from our sins. How awesome is it for those that know Christ? Closing our eyes in death means stepping into immediate face-to-face fellowship with Jesus himself. And I pray again that we would be a church that lives every moment of our lives for that moment when we see Jesus face-to-face. Every single one of us in the room has to make a decision at some point in our lives what to do with Jesus. And here's what the decision comes down to. Um, we just got to decide what side of the cross we're going to fall on. Like every one of us has to decide if we're going to kind of fall in line with thief one who rebuked Jesus, denied Jesus, um, died in his sins unforgiven, right? Like I see all he's went through. I've heard about it. I know what he said. I know the claims. 
I get it, but I'm not going there. Like, I don't, I don't really want to believe that. Died in his sins, unforgiven. Tragic, horrific story. I pray that none of us choose this. On the other side of the cross, though, and again, here's the decision that some of us need to make this morning, is to fall in line with that thief who saw, who heard, who witnessed, who experienced, and who believed. So you know what? I believe that's true. He is the Son of God. He did come to die in my place for my sins, to save me, and to give me eternal life. What are you going to do with Jesus this morning? I want to give us an opportunity, if we don't know him, to come this morning, just like the thief did, and to place faith in Jesus. So I just want to ask you, if you will, just to bow your heads and to close your eyes with me. The Bible says, coming into a relationship with Jesus, it is about believing in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, confessing with our mouths that God raised him from the dead. It's about having faith that what we talked about this morning is true. The Bible says if you're willing to believe and to confess those things, that God will save you. He'll give you a new heart. He'll put his Holy Spirit inside of you so that you can live the life he's called you to live here on this earth. And the ultimate promise is, again, one day after this short, temporary life on this earth is over, you will go and live in eternity with Jesus. If you need to make that decision to trust in him this morning, again, in your seat, you can just say something like this in the quietness of your heart. You can pray this morning and say, God, this morning I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he came into the world and lived a perfect life, that he died in my place for my sins, that he rose from the grave to bring me eternal life. God, I believe there's nothing I can do this morning to earn salvation. So God, I'm asking you to give it to me as a gift. God, save me, forgive me, rescue me. I am done living for me. God, I want to turn and I want to come after you. If you prayed, confess that this morning. I just want to stop and pray for you if I can. I just want to ask you where you sit. If you would just lift your hand just to let me know you prayed to receive Christ this morning. Hands are already going up. I just want to pray for you. Praise God. Father, I just want to pray over these people. God, who this morning have placed their faith in you and you alone as the one who can offer them salvation, as the one who can act on their behalf with power to save them and to give them eternal life. Father, I pray this morning you just overwhelm them with your love. Start to change them right now from the inside out. Again, put your Holy Spirit inside of them, God, so that they can live the life that you've called them to live, desire them to live here on this earth. And God, help them this morning to have an overwhelming sense of hope for what waits on them after this life is over. God, I thank you for awakening faith in the hearts of people, changing eternities in this place this morning. We love you so much, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Here's how we're going to close our service today. Um, We wanted to end today's uh, service with communion as a church. I know there's a lot of people in the room, so we're going to try to do this the best way that we can. Um, So we're going to have a couple of ushers set up on the sides, and I know that they're getting in place right now. Um, We're going to kind of start in the middle of the room uh, near the poles. So if you're sitting there, and we're just going to dismiss 
each row one by one. And so what we'd like for you to do is to exit your row when these ushers tell you to go. You can come and you can take the bread, dip it in the juice, partake of that. And then we'd like for you, if you would, just to go back and have a seat. We're going to close together with a song. We've got some we need to let you know about before you leave. But in these moments, I think it's always important for us to remember why we do this. Right? It's more than just bread and juice. I mean, the Bible says that communion is about us remembering this. That when we take that bread, we remember that the body of Christ was broken for our sins. That when we take that bread and we dip it in the juice, that we remember that that juice represents the blood that Christ spilled for us at the cross to cover our sins so that they could be forgiven. The Bible says also that we need to examine ourselves before we take this. We need to confess any sin. We need to make sure our hearts are in the right place. I mean, this is a big deal when we do this. So I'm going to pray again one more time over us. If you need to confess, examine your hearts, I'm going to ask you to do that. And then our ushers will start dismissing row by row from the middle of the room. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that we can gather this morning and remember that not only did he die and shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven, God, but that he rose from the grave is very much alive today. God, and that he can do more in our lives than we can ask or imagine. So as we reflect and remember on all that he's done for us, God, I just pray that our hearts would be pure in the right place. God, that our minds would be set on him and him alone. Be glorified in this time. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.